The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is singer-songwriter and activist Billy Bragg. Billy started his music career in the late 1970s in the band Riff Raff, had a short flirt with the British Army before he embarked on a solo career that so far has produced 12 albums. Many of his songs are deeply political and often anti-fascist and pro-union, like the beautiful Between the Wars and the militant All You Fascist, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie, which he once dedicated to Italian footballer and open fascist Paolo Di Canio. Billy is also a tireless political activist for a broad range of progressive causes and groups, including my friends at the anti-racist organization Hope Not Hate in the UK. Finally, he has written several books, including his latest book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, published with Faber last year. Welcome to Radical, Billy. Great to be here, Cass. Let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? It's the same sports team that I support now, which is West Ham United. In 1964, when I was six years old, they won the FA Cup. And my uh, uncle took me to see them return through the streets of uh, East London Borough, next door to the one I grew up in, uh, with, the, with the Cup. And then in 1965, the year after that, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup and returned uh, with that cup. And then in 1966, West Ham won the World Cup. So after a run like that, you know, Bobby Moore picking up three trophies at Wembley, it's hard to support anybody else. They were our local team and that's who I've always supported. So how is it to support a team that pretty much peaked at your beginning? Well, they have moments, you know, they kind of come and go. They have won the FA Cup twice in the last 50 years and they got into a cup final against Liverpool, which was an incredible cup final, although they didn't win. They <laughs> lost on penalties. But I think it's, it's easy to support a team that wins everything. Absolutely. You don't have to worry about things like relegation. I mean, this last couple of months with West Ham, who were just above the relegation zone when the lockdown came in and the matches ended, you know, what, what was going to happen? Were we going to come back? And if we came back, would we get relegated? That would be a real icing on the cake of a rotten year. But when we did come back, they hit a load of really good form. And when you're expecting them to fail and they don't fail, I think you get more joy than when you're expecting them to win and they do win. Yeah. And yeah. as a socialist, as a supporter of the Labour Party, it's always good to, <laughs> to, uh, to be able to be used to that feeling. So the second question will probably be very difficult for you, but what is your favourite political song? Roll Over Beethoven by Chuck Berry. Oh, wow. That went quick. The most radical pop song I've ever written, I think. And people don't necessarily recognize it at that. But it was written in 1955. And Chuck Berry is saying in the song, Roll Over Beethoven and tell Tchaikovsky the news. He's saying to white America, your old white guy culture is over. And here I am, a black guy with a shiny red guitar. I am the future. This is what music is going to be like from now on. So you better get out of the way. I don't think there's ever been a more radical song that hit so hard and, and summed up the change that was coming in a way that, that Chuck Berry did with Roll Over Beethoven. And finally, what is your favourite political book? My favourite political book is The Lion and the Unicorn by George Orwell, yeah, which was written in 1941, I think, 41, 42. And the reason I, I love it is a number of reasons. Firstly, Orwell is struggling in the book with reconciling himself to having to support Churchill in order to fight Hitler. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a bit of a change for him because previously he'd, he'd not been that kind of guy. You know, he'd, he'd been in the Spanish Civil War on the Republican side and he, he dismissed Churchill as an imperialist. And so he's struggling with that. The language of it is just brilliant. I mean, the opening line, you know, as I write, highly civilised individuals are flying over trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. which is a great opening line for any kind of book. Yeah. But most importantly, I love it because he manages to articulate an, an idea of Englishness that I think still resonates with people, an idea of Englishness based on compassion, on a kind of universal belonging that's about something intangible but very, very important to him. And it's hard to do that for any identity, I think, you know, to try and articulate a sense of belonging. But reading that book in the 1980s, actually, when I first read it, I realised that it is possible to be progressive and a patriot. I thought about that when you mentioned it, and I thought about your own book about which we will talk later. So before we talk about politics and music, how do musicians like yourself deal with the pandemic? What does your professional life look like these days? Well, my professional life is on hold, really. I mean, I I haven't done any gigs this year, and I doubt I will now. I think probably my profession will be one of the last to come back to what it was before. Because, you know, we think of my audience, I'm 62, so my audience are mostly middle-aged people. Are they going to want to stand in a room with 500 strangers in a dark club for two hours singing a song? You know, not until we can be absolutely sure that it's safe to do that. So it may be a while. I was going to do in 2021, which was make an album. Now that becomes the thing to get focused on this year. So I'm, I'm looking at doing some recording in the autumn and the winter, put an album together. So I have something ready to go late next year. But my life as, as a musician, I've seldom been as busy as I've been the last few months because all of a sudden everybody wants some content. Everybody wants a song. Everybody wants a gig to help them raise some money to keep going, you know. So I've been really busy trying to connect with people and keep my name out there as well, because obviously that's another important thing. You don't want to lose, you don't want to lose connection with people, right. you know. You want to keep your name out there. There's a number of ways of doing that with social media, but you, you have to go a bit beyond that. So I have been sort of writing songs and doing things that allow me to be part of what's going on without going out on tour. And there's a number of ways to do it. You know, you can, you know, post new songs, do online gigs. I had to convert my Sun Lounge into a studio. It's <laughs> been crazy. And I'm not, I, I'm someone who hates being in the studio. So it's a real technical mountain for me to climb. But, uh, you know, it's a learning curve. And I think when we get back together, when it starts happening again, people will still be interested in online gigs. It won't be the one way we earn a living, but people will be like, oh, yeah, I'll have some of that. Right. So you started in the 1980s, which was an extremely polarized period in British politics and society. How has that period shaped you as an artist and as an activist? Well, it kind of, first of all, educated me, but it's also defined me as well for a lot of people. It it educated me because prior to the 1984 miners' strike, my politics were personal. Mm -hmm. And I kind of inspired by people like, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, Phil Oaks, The Clash to be a kind of songwriter that had an idea and spoke about the world. But the 1984 minor strike didn't only radicalise me, uh, but it also gave me an ideological language with which to write songs like There Is Power in the Union, Mm -hmm. uh, Between the Wars, Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. I couldn't have written those songs before because I just didn't have the the perspective to be able to do that. And because the first time I I came onto uh, other people's horizons was with Between the Wars, I'm very much defined with that period. And I'm cool with that. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But it was a long time ago. The world has moved on considerably. And, you know, at the end of the 80s, 
the Berlin Wall came down, Thatcher resigned, and I became someone's dad. <laughs> now, any one of those, any one of those would have really forced the Billy Bragg from 1984-85 to rethink how he did things. But all three of them together in a two, three-year period, you know, it's bound to change you. And, and that's cool. I'm good with that. But it's still, I think for some people, I'm still that sort of radical singer-songwriter. I try and live up to that, but also I try to sometimes to surprise people by doing things that they wouldn't expect. That's one of the problems with being Billy Bragg. It's quite easy to get pigeonholed. So you have to keep trying to think of doing things that challenge your audience. Right. So talking about issues that aren't necessarily in the mainstream, you know, around the turn of the century, I started talking about Englishness, identity, patriotism. Now I'm talking about the problems with you can have too much free speech. These are ideas that challenge my audience. And I want to do that. I don't want to go out there and just underscore what they're saying. You know, during the last election in the UK, I was on the road. You know, I was talking about the reasons for tactical voting. And sometimes people in the audience get very, very angry with me. But I think it's better that you do that, that you challenge people, than you just go out there and, and say what they're expecting you to say. You know, I do have songs where I do that, obviously. But also in the context of what I'm doing, I really need to have something that sort of takes on what they think I am and what they think they think. Right. And I will not try to pigeonhole you too much, but I saw you a few years ago in Chicago, and it was only a few days after Margaret Thatcher had died. And you were, to put it mildly, downright giddy. And a lot of people around me were taken aback by that. What did Margaret Thatcher mean or represent to you? Oh, she's uh, probably the greatest inspiration in my career. <laughs> Billy Bragg, as you know, him, probably wouldn't exist without Margaret Thatcher. But then we're all products of our time. She defined Britain in the 1980s. There's no escaping from it. And she was a genuine radical, and I admire that in her, you know? But ultimately, it was her commitment to smashing the post-war consensus in the UK that ended up creating the situation whereby I was able to start writing songs such as we've already mentioned. And I think without that, I would have just been a run-of-the-mill singer-songwriter. Nothing wrong with that. But I, I doubt if I'd still be working, I'd probably have had my moment and gone. As yeah. it is, I still feel that I have something to say. People expect me to have something to say, so I try and live up to that. And as a result, I'm still able to have a career. Right. And it might have been the setting, which was kind of an upscale wine bar, but I was... Um, City Winery, was it? Yeah. And I was yeah. surprised that there were a lot of people there who were uninterested or even kind of annoyed by your political statements in between songs. And I was wondering, has it become less popular to be overtly political as an artist? I'm not sure if it's become less popular. I think it's become less viable. I think a lot of political comment has migrated online. Right. As a result, music has lost its role as a place where young people come to find out about politics. Yeah. In the 20th century, music was the only social medium we had that was available to us. When I was 19 and I wanted to talk about the world, the only medium I had that was viable for me was to learn to play guitar, write songs and do gigs. You know, that gave me a platform. And now if you're 19 and you're angry about the world, you can blog, you can tweet, you can make a bloody film on your phone and edit it. Right. You know, so the urge to get up and sing, and not everybody wants to stand on a table and be the center of everybody's attention. Some people would, were prevented from expressing their views because the bar was you had to go out there on your own on stage, you know. So conversely, although music isn't so political now, more people are getting to express their views. But the flip side of that is nobody's ever going to invite you to tour America reading out your tweets. <laughs> That's true. Let's hope. Let's hope. Oh, I'm no, I'm not my sure fingers about crossed. that. I'm Don't say sure. that. Don't say that, Kaz. <laughs> when I first started saying that five years ago, everyone laughed. Now nobody, everyone's like, hmm, that's a good idea, actually. I'm like... I think I could. Uh, <laughs> I know. I might be able to do that, yeah. Greatest tweets. Billy Bragg's greatest tweets live on stage at the City Winery, Chicago. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> uh, that's a dystopia. Or you could just tweet the gig. 
You wouldn't even have to... <laughs> Write this down. We're going to make a million cash. <laughs> Write this down. So one of the things I've been thinking about is can, can music ever be truly non-political? Because even basic love stories reflect ideals and morals about society. And I would argue that even the so-called nihilism of the rave period was essentially a political statement too. Yeah, in, in, in a sense, it said, fuck you to politics. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a political statement. And I accept that. I recognize that. Can music ever not make a statement? It's a, perhaps a better question. And I think, no, it can't. If it's, if it's going to engage you emotionally, then it needs to say something to you. It needs to take a stand on something. It needs to evoke something, even if it's instrumental music. So whilst I listen to a lot of music that isn't capital P political, I don't. that's not my defining issue for music. I listen to a lot of music that isn't capital P political. Right. I do find in some songs a political context that, and, and a political context that may not have been put there by the writer. Anais Mitchell, a great songwriter from uh, America, wrote a few years ago a musical based on the story of Orpheus in the Underworld called Hades Town. And in the context of that musical, she wrote a song called Why We Build the Wall. Basically, you know, we build the wall to keep us free. You know, and it's this wall that keeps out the enemy that keeps us free. Now, she didn't know Donald Trump was going to be president. Right. She didn't know that Donald Trump was going to have people chanting, build that wall. Because when I first heard her sing it, she did a tour with me. Ah, oh, I thought that was an incredible political song. I got her to write the lyrics down for me. I loved it. And then, when, of course, when Trump came along, I recorded it. So you write a song and you don't expect it to be seen in that way. And suddenly it comes to its own focus and it, it turns out to be very political. And that brings me to the current period, which is very polarized again and reminds in certain ways to the 1980s. Mm. Do you see that reflected in contemporary music? Well, this gets back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about music in the 1980s and music now being two completely different beasts because... Since the 20, end of the 20th century, music has lost that vanguard role in our culture. So it's not so clearly reflected, but you do find people using music in a political way. I mean, if you think of Beyonce at the Super Bowl, bringing in Black Lives Matter into that, you know, uh, if you hear someone like Dua Lipa with her song uh, New Rules, which is a kind of almost a feminist tract. And, and certainly in the UK, the music that has the most edge is grime music, which is predominantly made by people from the black community. And they are still marginalised by mainstream culture in the way that all youth were marginalised by mainstream culture in the 20th century. Right. You know, we had our own press and we had our own radio stations. We had our, you know, we weren't, we could sing about Thatcher, but we could never get any purchase on that situation. Well, youth aren't marginalised anymore. They're in the mainstream now, they're everywhere. But there are still communities that are marginalised and young black men and women are in that community. So they're still using music in the way that we use music to talk about their situation, to express their anger, to challenge the world as they see it. So they're kind of like the real punk rock now, right. grime. And then that's the music that has edge. That's starting to come into the mainstream as well, which is, I think that's a positive thing. Absolutely. A bit related to that, Someone on Twitter asked, who is today's Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan? Who is that in your opinion? Well, what, what kind of role is that you're talking about there? Yeah, I guess the political commentator who captures yeah, you see, well, the zeitgeist. You know, the person who asked that on Twitter should look on Twitter because that's where that person is now. They're not playing the guitar. They're not singing about the world. They're tweeting about it. What they've been common with Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and everybody else who was writing songs in their youth is they're trying to make sense of the world. But they're trying to make sense of the world through a mixture of Twitter, through Google, through Instagram, 
their points of reference are totally different and they won't manifest in the same way. There's no point in looking for the new Beatles. Things have moved on. But there are still people who will be able to create art that cuts right into what you're feeling, you know, finds their way into your day. That's still there. But the idea of a generation coming together around one single idea can still be done. And Black Lives Matter in the past few months has been an expression of that. But that didn't come from someone writing a song about George Floyd's murder. That came from someone tweeting the film of him being murdered. So I would say there's an example there. That cultural power that Dylan had now lies in the hands of a, 40, I think she was 14 years old, wasn't she? That young woman who filmed the clip of uh, George Floyd pleading for his life. That's where the power of youth is now. So you used to self-define as a socialist, but now you self-define as a progressive. Why the change? Well, I think once the Berlin Wall comes down, the post-Cold War world, what a socialist is, is a little bit hard to clearly define. And it comes with a whole lot of baggage. And I've found over the past couple of decades, really since the turn of the century, the way I've been articulating what I believe has been in more broader strokes. It's not been quite so ideological. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is that I don't think the language of Marx, which we use to articulate our ideas in the 20th century, really resonates with people anymore. We end up talking to ourselves if we use that kind of language. Secondly, the politics no longer has that strict ideological sensibility. We live in a world where both Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn can be described as being populists. I know you'd have some argument with that, Kaz, but that's one of the shorthands that the press use. And I think the bipolar nature of left and right politics also breaks down a little. You know, if you look at something like Brexit, the divide really was between young and old. And I think that's also part of what's going on. So for me, the big pitch I make to my audience at gigs is a fight against cynicism. Because, you know, cynicism is what undermines our ability to bring about genuine change. Our cynicism, not the cynicism of the Daily Mail and Fox News. I'm talking about those of us in the room. Right. Nobody gives a shit anymore. Our feeling that, you know, nothing's ever going to change. I mean, we've all been around the block a few times, my audience. Yeah. And we have to recommit ourselves. And the best antidote to cynicism is activism. That's what gets rid of it. And that's crucial with my audience because what I'm trying to do with my audience is inspire them to take action. Because I know I can't change the world, so I've got to try and get them to change the world. And I believe that the currency of music, what we do, whoever makes music, whatever music they make, is empathy. That's the absolute bedrock of it. You're trying to make someone feel emotions for someone or a feeling they've never felt themselves, you know? If you mix that empathy with activism, which is what I try and do, you get solidarity. And through solidarity, you get change. So I find myself talking in these terms rather than specific dialectic analysis of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't make any apologies for that because I'm trying to reach a broader audience with that. You know, I define a progressive as someone who believes that society should be reordered so that everybody has the means by which to reach their full potential. Talking about activism, you have also been a lifelong anti-fascist activist. And I remember watching a video of your standoff with a local BNP leader in Barking, which is the town you were born in, about 10 years yeah. ago. How yeah. has the anti-fascist struggle changed since then? Well, in, in one sense, the British National Party have been utterly defeated. They were defeated in that election in Barking and, and the, the people of Barking, predominantly white working class people, I would add, 
in that election that followed that confrontation I had with the leader on the streets during that campaign. They didn't only uh, fail to win any more seats on the local council, they lost every seat they had. And that really delivered a terminal blow to them. They never survived what happened to Embark. And I'm very proud of that because obviously when your hometown elects 12 BNP councillors, more than have ever been elected anywhere in Britain before, the shame that comes with that and the stereotyping is your people as racist. You know, my people in Barking and Dagenham are no more racist than anybody else. You know, the people in your town, Kaz, it's just they've got these arseholes knocking on doors, turning neighbour against neighbour. So we defeated them there. And the idea of an organised fascist party standing for election now, I don't think it's possible. But unfortunately, those ideas have gone underground and have gone more violent. Now there are hardcore neo-Nazi groups in the UK who are very threatening. And for the kind of soft racism, that's unfortunately the undercurrent in Brexit. That's where that anger against uh, immigrants has gone to Brexit. I mean, I've, I've seen clips on the TV of people saying they voted Brexit because they didn't want any more Muslims. Yep. I mean, you know, there's no connection really between the two. So it's not gone away. It never goes away. I mean, you know, every generation has to learn how to fight these bastards. Right. You know, we can do the most we can do is to pass on our experience to the next generation and help them to do what they can do. Right. And circling back to George Orwell, in 2007, you wrote the book, The Progressive Patriot, A Search for Belonging, and you argued for progressive patriotism. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I can, yeah. My sense about how 2007, that's significant because the year after the British National Party won those 12 seats, and the book was my response to that. You know, write a song, forget it. You know, you need something a bit more than the bloody song to deal with this. This is serious. So that was my response. And one of the, my part of my analysis of why the British National Party were able to do something like that is because the left had retreated from the issue of national identity and belonging, particularly belonging. And, you know, you can say I'm not interested in all that stuff, but it just allows the far right to command background and through that to decide who does and who doesn't belong. And I don't think we can do that anymore. Right. So we'd have to start to look at You know, do we have our own patriotism? And I would argue that we do. You know, I love my country. That's why I'm involved in politics, because I hate it when it doesn't live up to its expressed values. So as a socialist or as a person of the left, I understand there's lots of different types of socialism. There's not just one type. And oddly enough, it's the same with patriotism. There isn't just one sort of patriotism. Now, the, the traditional patriots, they want you to believe there's only one kind because they're, they're trying to get you to conform to their idea of what society should be like. But I, I don't agree with that. So on one hand, you've got what you might call the proud patriots, the traditional patriot, and they believe in symbols like the flag, institutions like the monarchy and the army, and they believe in assimilation. A progressive patriot, They are more focused on values, the values that a country claims for itself, the behavior of that country, and the diversity of society. So these are two yeah. different facets of the same thing. Blair said something a few months ago when uh, there was a debate about patriotism around the leadership contest. And Blair was saying, oh, you can't decide what patriotism is. It's only a one thing. And then he, and then he listed those things that were totally opposite to each other. <laughs> and I'm like, mate, you really don't understand this. But the left, even the, in some ways, centrists more, because they're so frightened of scaring the horses, have a very blinkered view of what it means to, to belong to your country, to have a sense of belonging. And I really feel that we need to talk about these things, not only to combat the far right, but also so that we have our own tradition, because there are a number of traditions made England. One of the strongest ones was a dissenting tradition, a tradition of dissent. And that runs back to Magna Carta, the Reformation, the Civil War. I mean, you know, we fought a civil war about how do you hold absolute power to account? 
You know, there's a long thread of dissent that runs through our history, and we need to reconnect with that, not least because we need to start to manifest a program of devolution for England and say that, you know, we are English, we want this devolution because we want our country to be better run and a more cohesive society. And we are not afraid to say we're English, we're not afraid to, this is our flag, it's a, you know, a red flag on a white background, this is who we are, because it is who we are. And if you want to be part of that, you can be part of it. You know, English, ultimately, if it means anything, Englishness, it has to be about where you are rather than where your grandparents were from or your parents were from, you know, about place rather than race which is a beautiful summary. I'm a little bit skeptical about that, in part because research often shows that patriotism or, let's say, ethnocentrism, in-group, out-group differentiation, that actually the association with the in-group is often secondary to the hatred or disdain Mm. for the out-group. And there are some progressive patriotisms that you can think about the Scots. But having lived in Edinburgh for a few years, I do not see much Scottish patriotism without anti-Englishness, right? There there has to be an out-group. There often is. Yeah, there often is an outgroup. And that's, you know, that's absolutely clear in Brexit. You know, Brexit was all about the outgroup. Right. Identifying those people against who we're going to fight. Progressive patriotism tries to do away with that. Progressive patriotism tries to create a sense of, uh, of belonging, to illuminate our identity from an inner light rather than relying on an outer light that defines us in opposition to somebody else. Yeah. That's the absolute key tenet of progressive patriotism. I don't know. Do you have a soccer team that you really dislike? Yeah, of course. I have the same. And so to me, and I have discussions with my wife about this, who doesn't have strong allegiances to a team. And she's always so surprised when I'm just really happy when Ajax has lost, even though PSV drew or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's like, you hate Ajax more than you love PSV. Yeah. And, well, and- I'm, I, it may be the same with me and Arsenal. So, But that's a sporting thing. You have to be too careful, Cass, reading across from that. I mean, it's a, it's a very human thing, I know. But the point of sport is to allow you to do that in a way that's not negative to society. Possibly. So do you believe that a progressive patriotism could have prevented Brexit? Yeah, I do. In order to be a progressive patriot, you have to look honestly at your own country. An element of Brexit was blaming all of our problems on somebody else and not accepting these are our problems. And uh, by God, the pandemic has brought those problems home to us. Jesus Christ. So then progressive patriotism is kind of loving your own nation and people for progressive patriotism is, is yes. Progressive patriotism is respecting the values that your your country claims to uphold. And crucially, in the the government's list of values, tolerance is a very important one in there. Sense of fair play. But tolerance is an official value. And so is the rule of law. Right. No one is above the law. The promise of Magna Carta. We're talking about values. And then we're also discussing behavior. You know, because the patriot who says my country right or wrong will not talk about behavior, will not talk about accountability will not talk about any kind of revisionism, so-called. You know, doesn't want to know the bad facts. Whereas the progressive patriot is willing to accept that although Winston Churchill won the war, he was fundamentally not the kind of person who could lead the country into peacetime. If you want someone to judge Winston Churchill, there is no higher authority than the electorate of 1945, who 75 years ago, last weekend, threw him out of office, despite the fact that he won the war. So he's not a, a wholly loved figure. He's a, clearly there's dark and shade in Churchill. The proud patriot would have none of that. The proud patriot would dismiss that. The progressive patriot says, you know, you've got to see both sides of who people are. Right. So last year you wrote a short booklet entitled The Three Dimensions of Freedom, which I truly enjoyed. Why did you write Thank that you. booklet? 
and what is its main message? Well, I don't think I could have written the book without the inspiration of Donald Trump. I've always been aware of the idea of free speech and what a fundamental foundation it is for a free society. But Donald Trump has put a question mark over that for me, because it seems to me that if you allow people to say whatever they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want, with no comeback, which is the definition of Donald Trump's Twitter feed, then you really are in trouble. You know, it's not just about argument, the free market of ideas. In the end, free speech relies on the notion that truth will out. That if you debate with someone, you will come ultimately to the truth. But if you're dealing with someone who has absolutely no interest in the truth and has no sense of shame whatsoever, four years of free speech in the United States of America has failed to hold Donald Trump to account, even to the, to the sort of conventions of his office, never mind what he says. When you've got a rogue like Trump, Free speech is important and free speech is like the front line in that fight. But you have to have a fallback position that because Trump is going to just walk through your free speech line. And the fallback position for me is the accountability that no one is above the law because Trump is kind of like a law unto himself. We're seeing that currently in Portland, where he's using federal troops on the streets there to snatch people off the streets in a way that would be chilling in a police state. And this is happening in a Western democracy. He right. is not playing by anything that you and I would recognize as the rules. And as such, the conventions of free speech will not protect us. In order for us all to be free, we have to have free speech, but we also have to have equality, to have respect for one another, respect for each other's right to say what they think. But the thing that gives freedom its teeth is the ability to hold those in power to account. So finally, what is the most important misperception about your music? The most important misperception about my music? I think it's probably that I'm only a political songwriter. You know, I did a gig, it must be 20 years ago now, after my son was born, I did a comeback gig at the Roundhouse in London. And afterwards, my sound man was winding up the leads on the stage. And one of the guys who'd done the security in front of the stage said to him, oh, I really enjoyed that. That was good, that, wasn't it? And I, my guy said to him, well, what were you expecting? He said, well, I just expected to be like a political lecture, you know. But I actually quite enjoyed that. And that's, <laughs> that's in a nutshell, that's my problem. But people who don't know my stuff imagine that everything I do is political and that I'm only interested in politics. The people who do know my stuff, even though they themselves are incredibly political, are sitting at home weeping to brickbat. <laughs> oh, you outed me there, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, in that sense, you know, the fact that you love that song, Kaz, to me is that's the kind of key thing that I'm trying to do is to, is to get beyond the purely political. That's part of me. But there's something much deeper than that. It's the empathy that I was talking about. Right. You know, the ability to make someone laugh is really easy. You and I have done it many times in this conversation. But the ability to make someone sit down and cry without actually touching them, hurting them, giving them any pain, you know, just through a song. That's a really powerful cultural ability. And to allow yourself to be able to do that, that also is a very important human thing, to allow yourself to be open to that. And we're lucky, those of us who can be moved in that way by music, that we don't need to take chemicals in our, in our bodies in order to alter our moods, as some people do, out of desperation. We're able to put on a particular piece of music that takes us to a particular moment or a particular place or a particular mood, and we're able to transcend the day and the environment that we're in and bring ourselves emotionally to a different place. That is such a crucial, crucial thing to be able to do in a society where there's so much pressure on, on everybody and we have so little time for moments of reflection. That's how I use music and that's how I hope people use my music. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Billy.
My pleasure, Kirst. Thanks. Great questions. If you want to know more about Billy Breck, go to his website, www.billybreck.co.uk, and do follow him on Twitter at, at Billy Breck. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come on.